Yo, an intro is the hardest fucking thing to record. I just literally said, hey, it's Kanal from the MMT podcast like 16 times. And then I just realized, fuck it, I'm just going to do it live. And so here we are. This is Kanal from the MMT podcast. Uh, episode 13, we out here. Thank you all for rocking with us for so long. Uh, last I checked, we have 76 Spotify followers, which is phenomenal. I love to shout that sort of shit out because it means that we're picking up new people and you guys are supporting. Really appreciate that. Uh, this week's episode because Rhea is on her bachelorette party right now. So, you know, we couldn't record anything. Um, and I'm really sad. I, I don't, you guys know what happens when Rhea goes away. I start ranting on IG and all sorts of shit. So if you follow me on there, Callie say, you might have something in the next four days to look forward to. But anyways, since Rhea's not here this week, um, me and Kush may do a, a episode together. But in the meantime, uh, we pulled an interview out of the archives because as you guys know, as I explained on the first interview, um, I've had a project for a very long time where I just went and interviewed prominent South Asians in the media and art fields, I guess, media and entertainment fields. I say South Asian, but really I mean brown folks because it's Middle Eastern people, South Asian, everybody. Uh, People who I think, you know, people who have reached really high echelons in the media entertainment world who I think a lot of people don't know are out there. And so I want to shed some light on them. I've been blessed that I I can get in touch with these people because I myself was a musician for a really long time. I say was because like it's weird. Well, I'll talk about that on a podcast episode one day. But um, so I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate to know these people. So one of these people is Tanya Rashid. She is a fearless fucking journalist, a true badass. And with all the talk about woman power and, you know, really equality and everything like that, she is somebody that I believe people should absolutely know about and people should absolutely look up to, especially all the, you know, young females out there because the work that she's done is just phenomenal. It is crazy. The just level of danger she consistently places herself in to get a story. She is a journalist that's been on Al Jazeera, National Geographic. She's recorded some pieces for Vice. Like she's just an all around fucking badass. And so I knew I had to interview her at some point because she's been doing this for a really long time. Uh, so what you're about to hear is the interview that I conducted with her. Uh, Rhea and I conducted it. Um, as per usual, Rhea composed the music. Uh, she edited Kush, uh, mixed it. Sorry. I'm just like all over the place. Cause I'm looking at my cat right now, but, um, yeah, that's how it worked. And without further ado, here's our interview with Tanya Rashid. There is a history of sexual abuse and rape in my family, a strong history, mental illness. There's all those things that just kind of affected me growing up as a kid, just seeing all that dysfunction. Yeah. Trauma can be residual based on your ancestry. If things get passed down, it obviously affects you. So after seeing a lot of things in my family, it became a life mission for me to break cycles. My guest this time around is an incredible journalist by the name of Tanya Rashid. That might not be a name that's readily recognizable to you, but she has been reporting from incredibly dangerous areas around the world for a very long time now, dealing especially with things that are happening to people of color. She's been on Vice, she's been on PBS, she's been on Al Jazeera, she's been on National Geographic, she's reported on topics ranging from skin bleaching to child marriages to the current Rohingya refugee crisis. She's a small Bengali woman who is incredibly formidable. 
and we're about to get into her story. I was born in Saudi Arabia. I grew up in Bangladesh and then I moved to Utah. Two extreme places that impacted my psyche in a particular way. You know, Saudi Arabia is very culturally conservative, but so is Utah. I saw two polarizing worlds and then Bangladesh is its own world in itself. Mm -hmm. Those things like really influence kind of what I do. Witnessing trauma and then Mm -hmm. also growing up in these really polarizing places. In Saudi Arabia, I was was born there and then raised there until I was about five or six. But I remember things, my mom not being able to go to the market without my dad to not being able to drive, not being able to vote. You know, just seeing my mom like that, it really impacted me as a kid because you could see there's different, you know, I loved my dad more than my mom back then because I would see my mom couldn't go anywhere. My mom couldn't do anything. (laughs) And then I'd see my dad and he can go all these places. And so I would just follow my dad. Saudi Arabia to Bangladesh, mm-hmm. where my dad applied for his um, student visa to study at the University of Utah, and then on his eleventh try, he got it. Eleven tries. Yeah, he was up in he was in the rain in the monsoon rain. I remember that day. And my mom, by chance, won the immigration lotto visa. Oh, okay. And so then we met my dad up in. Utah. So she's Bangladeshi, born in Saudi Arabia. Her dad's clearly trying incredibly hard to get over to the U.S. He manages to land it on his 11th try, and her mom wins the immigration lotto. This is a lot of adverse situations to be stuck in. Let's see if we can add something else into the mix. My mother and I couldn't speak English. There were no ESL programs. It was just Mormon County, straight up white people everywhere, Mm. no nothing. So my mother and I would watch Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street to learn English. It's a good education. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Rogers is a great person. (laughs) It was interesting, you know, it's just really hard upbringing, you know, because that's when I first encountered racism. Okay. And I obviously was the only brown kid there Mm -hmm. and I didn't, didn't fit in. You getting bullied and all kinds of things that would happen to me. Okay, so we all saw that one coming, but let's back up a little bit. What was her dad trying 11 times so hard to get into here in the U.S.? My father is a pharmacist, and he was okay. a pharmacist in Saudi Arabia. He started to look into being a pharmacist in Bangladesh, but he had the American dream. Okay. So he didn't give up on that. He was determined to make our lives here work. Okay. And he did it. I mean, my father's my hero. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would be who I am without, you know, achievements sure. and what he did. My mom is a housewife, okay. but she always taught me to this day, she's drilling in my head to be independent, independent. never depend on a man, to be myself, to break cycles. Mm-hmm. You know, those things were implemented. I don't want to speak to what brown females go through because, you know, obviously I'm a brown male, but I, I don't know anything about that. But I feel like it's probably very common that there's this dichotomy that always exists that's like, hey, get an education, be independent, but also, as you're about to hear, make sure you find a husband, like, make sure you're doing the right things. And it's really shitty to say this, but if this next part isn't the most brown person thing you've ever heard. When I was 16, I was a rebel child. (laughs) I was always doing the stuff that you're not supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. They always thought I would marry a Hindu, and that's the biggest no-no in our culture. Obviously, we don't agree with that, but that's that's pretty prevalent in the Hindu-Muslim sort of dynamic that either culture always, for whatever reason, doesn't want to intermarry with the other. Whatever, you either go with it or you rebel against it. Um... But check out how they tried to rein her in. 
brought me to Utah, claiming it was a vacation, and they introduced me to this 40-year-old man who's a doctor. And, and then as I knew what they were up to, and it confronted my family. My dad denies it to this day, but he was complicit <laughs> in some way. He was. I love him. I love my right, family. Right, right. It's a crazy dichotomy, yeah. Yeah, it's just the pressure of the family and ma- maintaining family honor and legacy is kind of a big deal. Yeah, you that's know? really... You 16 years old, heavy. sitting up with a 40-year-old guy... I'm a doctor that could change your life. <laughs> that was baffling to me the first time that I heard it, that that was the solution to their daughter's budding rebelliousness. And I was angry, but at the same time, I was like, word, I get that. Like, I, I feel like I've heard of things like this happening. And, and that was so striking to me that it was kind of, not that I'm for it, I'm not for it at all. But at the same time, I was like desensitized to it in a way. So that's a really, you know, weird thing that happened during the interview. But it was also interesting to me that she's still able to have love for her parents and she understands that like it comes from a place of like, they're just trying to, how would you say it? They're trying to ensure that their daughter has a good life, you know, that she's cared for and things in a very weird way. But it's it's crazy that she can step back from that and see that. My parents are the chillest, coolest people you'll ever meet in your life. It took time, but after seeing the kinds of stories I'm doing, the work I do, Mm -hmm. they're super proud. In the beginning, it was just utter confusion. Well, before I went to UCLA, I was flunking high school. I barely passed. And then I went to community college, which is the most, oh, she's destined for failure. I think my parents were so obsessed with me being a doctor. It's like so fucking annoying. It's like I wanted to do singing classes. I wanted to take art and it was always discouraged. It was always this, oh, this burden. At math, I was never into science. I was never into that shit. And they would sit me with a math tutor for hours. Did you go to Kumon? They tried to put me in that shit, but then they couldn't <laughs> afford it. So they put me in some ghetto ass math class. And I just like sit there. And after a while, the teacher would fall asleep. I fall asleep, and the teacher would tutor would fall asleep. Shout out to all my community college all stars. And I don't mean that in any sort of disrespectful way, because Lord knows I also got kicked out of college twice and then went to community college. There's no shame in any of that. I feel like, especially in the South Asian community, there's a lot of pressure put on you when you're younger to succeed in terms of money. Like you have to have the best career and the one that gives you the most solid paycheck that you can get for the rest of your life. And what's that? That's a doctor, engineer, lawyer. And so we all go through that. And some people just react to that differently than other people. So it's not to say that like Tanya was being an idiot and went from high school to community college or that, you know, I I like to think of it in retrospect that I wasn't being an idiot, but I just did not want to be in that biology program. And ultimately, I found my way out. And so did Tanya. I went to UCLA for my undergrad Mm -hmm. and over there I studied global studies and history. And that was kind of like, that's when I knew I wanted to do something for the world that was greater than me. I just didn't know what it was. I also interned for ABC News and I saw a difference. And ABC News formulate white male correspondents, not much diversity, and they were cutting back on international news. But then I joined Current TV and I worked at their investigative journalism team, which had these badass um, young reporters that were covering important issues, but not in that 
oh, I'm standing here. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But more like, hey, this is happening, and this is why it's happening, and this is why you should know. Uh-huh. And so seeing them made me even more curious. And then I knew, I was like, this is what I'm meant to do. I worked my way up. I started in their marketing department where I was doing all the marketing, and I was a brand ambassador for Current TV. And I went from that to joining their investigative unit where I worked as an intern and then worked my way up as a production assistant. <laughs> I was hustling. I just wanted to be there. You know, I didn't have enough experience. I knew I had the potential, but I didn't have the experience to back me up. So then my mentor, Mariana Benzeller, who's one of my favorite journalists, inspired me to go to Columbia. She said, well, why don't you go to Columbia? I went there. This is the perfect step for you in your career. Yeah. So then I went to Columbia. <laughs> I submitted my application 10 minutes. And pow, she gets into Columbia School of Journalism. Brown girl magic. So in Colombia, I was a one woman shop. I learned to shoot, edit, produce, everything. I was hungry, so I went for it. I was like, okay, now I have the experience of what I want to do. Now I want to know how to do it. I would see the people I looked up to do it. And then I thought, well, I want to do it. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, I don't even know how to use a camera. I don't even know how to edit. I don't even even know anything. It's safe to say she learns everything. Then she takes all these newfound skills and... And I moved to Bangladesh on my own. I only had $200 in my pocket and I just moved because I knew my gut feeling told me I needed to be there. I lived in a room that was... It was a closet. I lived in a closet. I slept on the floor with these two Australian expats in this neighborhood called Goshan. And I paid like 150 a month for rent. So you just gave like three quarters of what you came with just off the top. That's weird talking about it, but yeah. That's no, that's awesome. That's so cool. Like that's I just, And you just felt you needed to be there. I just knew it was my purpose. I knew it was my calling. I had to do it. That's a fucking risk to take, man. That is a fucking risk. Pardon my my Bengali. It was hard. It was so hard. It was such a risk to take because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how to do it, where to go. I just knew I had to do something. Mm-hmm. So I went and stayed with these Australian girls. And then I just started pitching to Al Jazeera and CNN and all these networks. And I just kept saying, I'm here, I'm here. Do you need anybody? So then they would send in their correspondents who would come in and I'd work as like a fixer, okay. which is the person who's like to the make lowest happen. rank of the journalism world. You're just basically trash. Okay. So I would get bossed around, buy people coffee, get them food, organize the logistics for a trip. And I didn't even know what the fuck I was doing half the time because I was like, I'm fairly been here for what, two months back I make money yeah word because you came with 200 you spent 150 off rip just trying to get an apartment and now you got 50 dollars to your name so what do you do I kept hosting correspondence, different on-camera journalists who would come in and then I'd do, you know, all the groundwork for them. And then I started to learn the craft. So I was like, huh, so this is how they do it. Mm-hmm. And so then I thought, by my first year, I had learned how to get the connections, how to get drivers, how to figure out the maps and the logistics and getting places. And then I started, then I was an associate producer, you know, awesome. I brought on a job to be an AP and it was like baby steps. Mm-hmm. And I would send like Al Jazeera, like it's like, you know, when you're a rapper, you drop a mixtape yeah. and you're just like selling it wherever you can. Yeah. Like, so yeah. that I would like, it was crazy. I would borrow cameras and like record myself doing pieces <laughs> to cameras. The demo reels. Yeah. And then okay. I would send them to these networks and they'd be like, you ain't shit. Like, who are you? <laughs> like. Let me find out the journalism game, like the rap game. Ain't nobody trying to give you a chance. And uh, I kept doing that. I wouldn't give up. I would sit for hours all night editing my own footage, trying to send it to different places to give me a chance. So, of course, if you stay persistent, if you stay dedicated, if you work hard, something has to give. 
And in Tanya's case, it did. It turns out that there was this reporter, whose name we are withholding, who was blackballed by the Bangladeshi government. So he did this very controversial story that got him blacklisted. And so he had to, he was on his way packing to leave. All of a sudden, Rana Plaza happened. Then they called me from Doha, the big bosses, and they were like, Tanya, go. And that was my first big break. Hard work and persistence meets luck. I think by then I was in Bangladesh for a year and a half. And then I was like, okay, I gotta make this happen. So I had to brush up a little bit on my history here. The event she's talking about was called Rana Plaza. It happened in Bangladesh. Uh, It's widely regarded as the deadliest structural failure accident in modern human history. 1,100 people died. 2,500 people were rescued alive from the building. I think it was about an eight-story building that had a variety of businesses inside that just collapsed. The factory collapsed. The Bangladeshi government wasn't letting any reporters in, any foreign correspondents. They turned to me. I was already there. I was already producing. And I was on their radar. And they said, okay, you've sent us all your mixtapes. Give this girl a shot. Let's Uh do it. So then I went. I did lives from the field. It's like across the street from the collapse site. I did news packages. I wrote articles. I took photographs. I had to put all the skills I learned at Columbia to use. Every single one. And then that's when, for the first time, I had a fixer. (laughs) I had a producer. (laughs) I had all of those things I had dreamed of having. (laughs) But I was under very unfortunate circumstances. You know, I was covering the humanitarian crisis. So it's under these unfortunate circumstances that Tanya is finally able to utilize all the training she's been putting herself through, all the hustle all the struggle that she's been putting herself through for the past couple of years and use her voice to shed some light on what's going on in that part of the world. As you heard, the Bangladeshi government was literally not letting anybody in to report on this huge crisis. So Tanya just happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right training to be able to tell this story, to use her voice. It's really a remarkable thing. And through this, she's able to start really catching the eye of people who want a reporter that looks different, that's able to get into places that other traditional reporters are not able to get into, to report on stories that, quite honestly, maybe don't affect traditional reporters. So Tanya goes on to report on a variety of topics that affect all of us. And it made me wonder, what's something that maybe she hasn't been able to report on that is kind of prevalent nowadays? Mental illness in our community, it's a big thing with the women, immigrant women, the isolation, depression. I think it's a big, big problem that's overlooked. And not just there, but mental illness in Bangladesh or even India. They just don't acknowledge it or they like to ignore it. It's like, oh, just dump their head in water, cold water will go away. And that's not true. Trauma is real. Depression is real. Mental illness is real. We can't avoid it. That's actually really, you know, that's a really... I think about that sometimes. I mean... My father's a psychiatrist, and had he not been, had I not been given that individual attention in terms of mental health, I don't know that I would know anything about it, to be honest. Um, The Brown community doesn't really talk about mental illness ever, so that's absolutely something that I think Tanya is right about and that I hope she does a lot more reporting on. But I was also wondering, doesn't this get dangerous sometimes? Uh, my think? most dangerous assignment I know is when I went traveled to the Democratic Republic of Congo and I was looking into illegal gold mining for National Geographic. And I was 
armed rebel-held territory. Sure. This was early this year. Interviewed warlords. <laughs> um, takes a lot to scare me. But I lived in a brothel for a month. The brothel wasn't safe either. I did stories on what gang rape. The Rohingya crisis wasn't safe either. I don't know. I'm not scared. I feel like God protects me. And then when it's my time to go, I gotta go. I'll go. You know, but I'm not careless. I did calculated risk. You know, when we did the National Geographic assignment, we had to fill out all these risk assessment forms. My team was experienced. I had a security security with me. So we, we, we all take calculated risk, but then you can't control whatever is meant to happen. Thanks. If it's my time to go, at least I can say I did all this stuff, you know, and I'll go in peace knowing that I did what I wanted. Imagine the nerve that you have to have to do something like that, to go into all these dangerous situations. I mean, really think about it. If you wanted to be a journalist, where would you start? What would you do? And once you've thought about that, think about, you know, not saying that it's an easy thing to do, but if you're a reporter here in the U.S., significantly different than if you were a reporter in some dangerous third world country out there in the world. And that is what Tanya's doing. So... It makes you wonder, in all these dangerous situations that she's putting herself into, how is it that she's able to pull this information out of people? I'm an outsider all the time. Okay. I feel like a fucking outlier. Never felt like I belonged anywhere. Bangladesh especially, it was weird. You know, the way I dress, I always try to be one with the people. I don't dress like fancy. Mm-hmm. You know, I just and I just want to be one with the people. I want people to communicate. That's why in my stories you'll see there's this level of empathy that I resonate and then people connect with that. Mm-hmm. And they see me as, and those the women will say, she looks like me. I can tell her. And people don't think about those things when they send journalists out. Mm-hmm. And I see it all the time. You know, white reporters going in and tell me how you were raped this old white man this yeah. little brown lady <laughs> I'm like oh you're not really getting an yeah. answer like... and what about the men third world men must be fucking jackasses right Oftentimes it's kind of demeaning and demoralizing because I put up an act and I play the role. It's to charm them into talking to me. It's weird when you're brown, you grow up in all this stuff and you know how to react and respond accordingly. You know, you know how to talk to an uncle. You know yeah. how to talk to your dadu. You know how to talk to chotobaya. You know, you yeah. learn those basic interaction techniques. And I applied all of that to every single person I encountered. Um, in Bangladesh, it was racism. There is racism in Bangladesh. There's racism and sexism. You know, one guy I was interviewing, he looked at me, he said, you look like a bua, which is slave. And I looked at him and I said, buas are human too. He didn't know what to say. He just looked <laughs> at me puzzled. And he's like, it's racism. There's a caste system there. I saw firsthand a Dalit woman cleaning people's shit and then collecting her money and people won't touch her. She has to like put out her dapatta like this and then they throw the change on her. That ends up being just one of the heartbreaking stories that she told me while, you know, I was interviewing her. And it's just kind of insane the amount of strength you have to have in order to calmly just talk to people who are going through some of the worst tragedies in their lives and no one cares about it and you're trying to shine light on that. And I think what gets lost there is that on top of that strength that you have to have to be doing stuff like this, there's probably a sense of just profound loneliness 
when you're the only brown female. I wish there was more. I want there to be more. The industry's really far. The way I can conceptualize it is, imagine you're with, this is the music industry, same thing, mm-hmm. just a bunch of white dudes who make all the, we were talking about this, yeah. who make all the decisions, who are always around each other. It's sociology. You're around the same kin, you're around the same people. It becomes like, that's all you know. And then all of a sudden, someone will pop in and say, why'd you put a brown girl up in that? What would that be like? Might get a fresh perspective. Like, oh yeah, we should do that. Great idea, you know? When I tell you that is the truest shit you are ever going to hear, it was amazing to hear Tanya say that because it's a feeling that I've had, that I've experienced. You know, I've worked for a record label before. I've literally seen how it's all controlled by a certain group of people. And those people might be great, genuinely awesome people. Like, it's not like everybody is an evil person. But it's just insane to walk the halls of a building, a multiple floor building, and realize you are the only brown person in that entire building. It's it's just baffling. And then... If you're ever in the position to be able to tell somebody in power to be like, hey, why don't you give, you know, a brown brown sort of person a chance and you try to hit them with facts like, yo, you realize that the South Asian population is the most highly educated population and they earn double what the average income of any American household is. You're just like, wait, why do I even need to feed you these stats so that you'll pay attention to me? Like, why wouldn't you just pay attention to brown people? It's insane. And and more to the fact, you walk around these hallways and you realize there's not a person in power who looks like you. So there's nobody really there to look out for you, which is exactly what Tanya's talking about. It's sociological. Like, you're going to inherently look out for somebody that kind of looks like you comes from where you come from, things like that. There's not a single brown person in the entertainment media arts field who's like that. And as much as it sucks to say, when there is somebody who's in a position like that, they may not necessarily want to reach back down and bring another person up with them. That whole crab in a barrel sort of thing that everyone knows about. And half of me after this many years is like, can you really blame them? You know, like they've struggled by themselves, had no one to look out for them, and they've made it to a certain position. So why should why should they help you? So I really identified with this particular vein of what Tanya was speaking about. And so I asked her who her inspirations were. I mean, I look up to Christiana Mompour. I look up to Oprah. Uh-huh. And those are the two females I can name off the bat. Maya Angelou, Bob Marley's first wife, Rita Marley, read her biography. I think she's incredible. I find women who face adversity to be really empowering to me, the ones who overcome these really crazy things. And so there you have it, the story of Tanya Rashid, an intelligent warrior who continues to tell her story and the story of impoverished people around the world. And it's never an easy path, especially for a brown female in the journalism field. But it's sad. It's like, I wish they saw it all along. Absolutely. That's my battle I face inside. It's like, I wish they saw it all along. And I hope this episode in particular will be helpful to those of you who feel they're on a path less traveled. I'm not super wealthy, but I'm living my calling. And they're proud of that. They're like, that's our daughter. She's doing something really great. And just when you thought Tanya couldn't say anything more true, 
she ended the interview with probably the truest shit you're ever going to hear about chasing your dreams. I would say stick to it, be consistent, be persistent, don't give up. It's hard, it gets ugly, it gets messy. People will hate on you more than they love you and you gotta withstand all of that and keep fighting. And it sucks, it mostly sucks. And you just gotta be kind of like a masochistic, sadistic fuck and like kind of like work your way around it. Just keep fighting, don't give up. And then when you start to see that things are working and then things don't work out, don't let that stop you. Right, keep at it. I would get a story that did really well or succeeded and then from that, it like hit a wall. This network wouldn't want me because it's gonna be like the bullshit. And then I would hit the wall, but then I keep going. Survivors is the brainchild of myself and Rhea Bomick, where we shine a light on the lives of successful brown creatives you may not have heard of before. We conduct and edit all interviews, Rhea composes the music, and our friend Kush mixes it all down. There's no training to this, it's all grassroots. If you know anybody that we should feature, if you want to help, reach out. Simple as that.